So in the car, on the way here, that my driver was asking me, how do you properly address me? And the proper address is, um, which is for Chinlok, so you know next time, is actually address me as HR Ajahn Brahm. His roundness, Ajahn Brahm. That's why I like his roundness. Now some of you may think that I'm getting fat, but I will let you know this is not fat, because I've been a monk now over 40 years. And every year you are a monk, a Buddhist monk, you grow in compassion. Every year your heart gets a little bit bigger. After 40 years my heart is so big, it's pushing out my, my belly, because it can't go anymore here. So this is not fat, this is just the result of a big heart, okay? <laughs> That's my excuse anyway. <laughs> so, for, for this evening's talk, somebody gave me a suggestion which I read a couple of minutes ago and they wanted me to talk about the Buddhist idea of consciousness. Now don't get worried, I can find a joke anywhere so it'll also be a funny talk as well as a meaningful talk as well I hope to try and find out what is it that is looking at me right now? What is it which can listen to this talk? What is it and where did it come from? And where will it go? You know, uh, it's like embryos, are they conscious if we destroy them? Is that doing a bad sin? You know, is a flower got consciousness and when we pluck it, we're murderers? What is the nature of consciousness? Does your dog have a consciousness? So this evening I'll be talking about the nature of consciousness from Buddhist principles, from anecdotes, from science and from wherever I can get a good story that's where I'll get it from. So the nature of consciousness this evening. Now we're going to start with the nature of the biggest part of... Well, first of all I should say what I said this afternoon in a meditation retreat. People in the West, we've only got five sense consciousnesses left. Seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting and touching. The five senses. And somehow it's weird, but if you go back into the, the source of Western philosophy, which was in Greece, and you read somebody like Aristotle, Aristotle always talked about six senses. And the sixth sense is not a movie. The sixth sense is something completely different. Aristotle said it was the mind. And he called the mind the sixth sense. He also called it the common sense. Because everything you see with your eyes, you hear with your ears, you smell, you taste, and you feel with your body, your mind also knows that. So all of the the experiences of the other five senses is also common to the mind. Which is why Aristotle called it the common sense. And somehow, some way, and no one knows why, in the 2,200 years since Aristotle, the Western world has lost its mind and lost its common sense. <laughs> in more ways than one. 
And it's actually very important because we've lost that idea of a consciousness, a mind, we have become very materialistic. In philosophy, materialism does mean just everything comes from this, this physical world and your consciousness is just some byproduct of the brain. That is the philosophy of materialism. And it's also, that uh, corresponds with the materialism which we have in our modern world, where things are more important than feelings or people. And you can see the problem of the two. And imagine if we go back to Aristotle, regain our mind, regain our common sense, and have a bit more spirituality, consciousness, mind, back into the scheme of things. It will change much of the way we look at our world. For example, I said this in my first talk when I came here, houses in Australia. I read a report, the biggest houses in the world are in which country? Here, Australia. The average size of our houses is bigger than anywhere else in the whole world. And why do we do that? Because for us, things are more important than people. To understand what I mean, there was a story which somebody uh, sent to me about a woman in England who won the British lottery, 41 million pounds sterling in the lottery. Would you like to win the lottery? Honestly. <laughs> <laughs> it's terrible. People get into all sorts of big trouble if they win the lottery. They, they've got all this money, they don't know what to do with it. It wrecks their life. So look, if any of you do win the lottery, to save you from a lot of suffering, you can donate all the money to me and I'll give it to the monasteries and, and then I'll save you a lot of suffering in life. Okay, deal? <laughs> no. But, Going back to this big house. The person bought this huge mansion as soon as they got the 41 million pounds sterling and they sold it one year later at a substantial loss. And a newspaper interviewed her. Why did you sell your big house? And she said, because in that big house I would hardly ever see my children or my husband. Such a huge mansion the children were in one part of the house. The daughter was in another part of the house. The husband was somewhere else. They never saw each other. They got lost in the huge spaces of their house. And he, she realized she had this great mansion, which was very impressive, but she was losing her family because they hardly ever saw each other. So she sold that house and bought a tiny house where the children had to share a bedroom where she couldn't escape from her husband and he couldn't escape from her. They saw each other many, many times a day, which means they learned how to love each other. And I just got an email from my brother this afternoon, unfortunately one of my uncles has died, but he was 90, fair enough. But I grew up in a small apartment with my parents and my brother. I always shared a room with my brother all my life. Yeah, we fought, but there was nowhere to escape. So we had to learn how to love each other and get on with each other. And because we grew up in a small place, we learned those beautiful qualities of kindness, love, forgiveness, cooperation, 
because we had no choice. And so even today, please downsize. If you're thinking of getting a new house, okay, but get a smaller one. Don't think, oh, I need more space. Have less things, and then you don't need so much space. And have your kids sharing a room together, so they have to get on together. So you're creating a family where people learn some of the qualities which we've lost in our modern world. How to get on with each other, because for us things become more important than people and these qualities. And I like saying this because many of you from Sri Lanka probably came from small homes in some small parts of uh, Sri Lanka and you did share, not even just a room, some people even shared a bed, six or seven kids and a dog on the bed. <laughs> and they, they got to sleep at night and you find those people are so close together, they're sisters, they're brothers and they love each other to bits and they're always there for each other. That is much more important than the thinginess of life, the material. But because we, we believe material things are the best, things are more important than people, we lose it. So we want to try and regain the fact that it's much more than just senses. There's a consciousness as well. Now, what is that consciousness and where is it? Because I was a scientist at Cambridge, theoretical physics, and many of my friends were trying to find out what is this consciousness and where does it come from? And sometimes when we're looking in the wrong place, we never find anything. So we've got to look in the correct place first of all. That's the trouble with science. Sometimes they can get so narrow-minded. We need to change our perceptual framework, the way we look at things. For example, what was it last, I don't know whenever, just since I last came here, I was invited to give a talk at CSIRO in the headquarters in Canberra. No, it's in Sydney, sorry. And I wanted to give me a talk on anything I wanted. And so I talked on the Buddhist idea, the nature of time which is also connected with consciousness. And I started off by going back a few hundred years, because I want to change people's perceptions, to being closer to the Buddhist idea of consciousness and time. 400, 500 years ago, most people on planet Earth thought this Earth was flat. That if you sail far enough, you fall off the edge. It was called flat earthers. And you may laugh at those people, but it was obvious to them. Just go outside and you see the earth is flat, got a few hills, but it's flat. But people soon figured out that was a wrong way of perceiving that this earth is a sphere, it's round. It's got limited area, limited space, but it has got no edges to it. You go round and round, and sooner or later you come back to where you started. It's not flat earth, it's around earth. And then later on, I do remember as a young man going in the buses on the way to school, if I wasn't looking at the pretty girls, I was contemplating the meaning of life. And actually, the former more than the latter, but I do remember trying to understand 
Yeah, I know the earth is flat, but what about our universe? If you go far enough in a spaceship, will you come to an edge of this universe? This is some brick wall where the government of the universe says you can't go any further, or a barbed wire fence, or some chasm and you just fall off the edge of the universe. None of those ideas for the limits of the universe made any sense to me. If there was a wall, there has to be something on the other side of the wall. If there's a fence, there must be something beyond the fence. It didn't satisfy me at all. I was a flat universer until you went to college and you realize even this earth, this universe, just like planet earth, that too is curved. So if you go far enough on this universe, you come right back to the religious center in Monash University, Clayton campus. You go round and round, just like the globe. Even though this universe has got limited volume, it has no edges to it at all. No boundaries on this universe. And there's any scientist here who said, yeah, we all know that. That's accepted knowledge. But now, I'm going to the next step, time. Can time have boundaries, a beginning and an end of time? If there was a beginning of time, just like the wall at the end of the universe, what's on the other side of the wall? What was before the beginning? What's after the end? Nothing really satisfies you. And any religions which said, oh, well, God started a shooter, that just kicks the can down the road. Yeah, but who started God? It's not satisfactory. But then you realize, if this earth is not flat, if this universe is not flat, then maybe time is not flat. Time curves, limited duration, but no boundaries. And time without beginning, without end. That is like the rest of our universe. Limited but without boundaries. Wow! I have now taught you the meaning of life. Simple. <laughs> and I don't usually watch movies, but there was a movie and I was on an aircraft and it sort of rang a few bells. It was the, uh, the uh, biography of Stephen Hawkins, the theory of everything. And because I would have bumped into that guy when I was at Cambridge, and because I knew many of the people he knew, like Professor Sharma, I went to his lectures myself, I thought, I'm going to watch this movie. And much of it was totally wrong. Professor Sharma never looked like that. But it's okay. But I was watching it, just you know, bringing back some old memories. But I was fascinated at the very end. Someone who's supposed to be the greatest mind in this current uh, planet Earth. Instead of having a Big Bang, he said, no, things before the Big Bang. He also said that the universe is without boundaries. No boundaries in space. No boundaries in time. Curved. Wow, that is.
is cool. What we're doing, we're changing our perceptions. Just like you tried to convince people that the earth wasn't flat and they wouldn't accept it. Now, modern people, we're trying to convince people time is not flat. It's not you go far enough and you fall off the edge. Curved. That's intellectually satisfying. And it's also what the Buddha said. Beginningless time, no end. Round and round and round. And the cycles of existence. Now when we change our ideas, change the basis of the way we look, we get the great insights. Now let's go to consciousness. Where is consciousness? Now I'm going to have a little experiment, getting you involved. I want you to put your right hand up. Not yet, wait for it. <laughs> what your right hand up if you feel happy. Your left hand up if you feel sad. And you have to choose one of those. You can't keep both hands down. If you're more sad than happy, left hand. More happy than sad, right hand. Okay, understand the instructions? Go for it. Okay, keep your hand up. Now those of you with your right hand up saying you're happy, please point to that happiness for me. Where is it? Where is it? Come on, point to it. Are you imagining it? Why can't you locate it for me? You can put your hands down now. Next time you're angry, point to the anger. Where is it? Where is it located? <laughs> Someone just pointed to their partner. <laughs> Very funny. <laughs> when you're in love, where is the love located? Have you ever noticed how difficult it is to locate emotions? Some people point to their head. Ha ha ha. Many people, up to about the 60s, they always thought the consciousness was in their heart. Especially Asians. This was where we, we lived until they did the first heart transplant. And that was weird because many people in Asia was wondering who are you going to be when you wake up? Are you the owner of the heart or are you the owner of the rest of the body? Now, we've done the heart transplants, when are we going to do the first brain transplant? If I die and I give my brain to our venerable Buddha Rakata over there, Will he start telling jokes in his talks? <laughs> Will it be my brain or his body which dominates? A great experiment to do. And I will tell you the answer now. If you put my brain in his body, he will still be Buddha Rakata. If I have your brain, I will still tell bad jokes. <laughs> it's, a, it's the nature of this. Because this is, the brain is not the mind. Something totally different. So what is the mind? And to understand what the mind is, what consciousness is, is a very simple argument. And I've taught this in, in prestigious gatherings at university. No one has ever been able to refute this argument about where the mind is and why you have problems pointing to it. And this came from the daughter of my friend, you know, who I went to Cambridge with. I saw him last October, but his daughter was away somewhere. She was in grade one at primary school, a five or six year old girl. 
When a teacher asks the whole class a simple question, what is the biggest thing in the world? One kid put their hand up, my daddy. <laughs> my daddy is the biggest thing, this little kid. Another kid, miss, 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 an elephant. An elephant is much bigger than her daddy. Miss, 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 a mountain, a mountain, it's much bigger than an, elef an elephant. Miss, miss, said my daughter's friend, my eye is the biggest thing in the world. Like that, everyone stopped. Even the teacher couldn't understand what she meant. Explain yourself. Said, well, miss, my eye can see her daddy, my eye can see an elephant, my eye can see a mountain and so much more. If all of that can fit into my eye, my eye must be the biggest thing. <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah. You know, she later did postgrad work in, I think, biochemistry in Oxford. Brilliant at five or six and just went on to just do excel in her intellect. But when I heard that, I said, nine out of ten, not ten out of ten. Because your mind, your consciousness, that can see everything that your eye can see. And it can also imagine things that you will never see in the real world. It can hear real and imaginary sounds, smell, taste, feel real feelings and imaginary feelings. And it can also know things which you, know, you can't uh, access through your five senses. In fact, Everything which can ever be known or experienced can fit into your mind. So your mind is the biggest thing. Not the biggest thing in the world, because the whole world can fit into your mind. The world lives in the mind, not the mind in the world. Case proved. Buddha wins again. The mind is a forerunner of all things. The first verse in the Dhammapada, that's what it meant. Everything can ever know experience can fit into this mind, this consciousness. That is the biggest. So what does that really mean? If all of this can fit into the mind, it's a waste of time looking for the mind in the human body. Because the human body lives in the mind. So what happens? When your body goes, does the mind go? If the mind lived in the body, when the body died, yes, maybe the mind dies. But because the body lives in the mind, the mind is much bigger. Of course it doesn't go. That's why we have things like ghosts. <laughs> And I like telling ghost stories when I come to Monash. <laughs> Weird stories, but true. How many of you have ever seen a ghost? Put your hand up. Any of you seen a ghost? Well, don't worry about your few of you over the back there. Don't worry, there could be one sitting next to you right now. <laughs> Are you sure? This was one of the weirdest ghost stories. I've ever read. There was, and this happened in Adelaide apparently many years ago, there was a couple about to get married. And as is the practice here in Australia, the bride always, 
every time on purpose arrives late usually five minutes. She just wants to start the marriage on her terms. <laughs> so she always arrives late. I've done these wedding uh, services and do the chanting and the bride never ever arrives on time. She's always late on purpose. But this time the bride arrived five minutes late but the groom hadn't arrived yet. He wasn't there. And she got worried. Perhaps, perhaps he got cold feet. Perhaps he didn't want to commit. Perhaps he, she was going to be let down, stood up, and she was really worried. And she thought, well, if he's not coming, maybe he's had an accident. So she got more and more worried. Five minutes, 10 minutes, 15 minutes, 20 minutes went past. And you can imagine her relief when she saw him coming down the street, running towards her. And she soon realised why he was late. Because his wedding suit was all dirty and cut, and had some bruises and blood on his face. He said, and the car he was driving to the wedding had an accident. And she looked at him and said, forget the wedding, I'm taking you to hospital. He said, no, 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 I need to go through this wedding. Just give me a few minutes to clean up in the men's room and we're going to go through the wedding. And she wanted to go through the wedding, it had all been planned, so okay. So he cleaned himself up and they went through the whole service. The vows, exchanging rings, lifting her veil and the <laughs> And then they went into the room to sign the marriage register and then they had their photographs taken and then they decided the two of them would actually drive to the reception, the party after the wedding and to give themselves some time alone while all the rest followed behind and because he was still a bit shaky after the accident she decided to be the driver. A few minutes later the people coming behind saw her car parked by the side of the road and she was screaming, she was hysterical, she was inconsolable and there was no sign of the husband, the newly married husband. He'd vanished and when they calmed her down she said that they were driving. She, he was sitting next to her, they were talking and when they passed this spot he disappeared. He vanished. And when they checked, the car he'd been driving had an accident right at that spot. And that's where he died. It was the girl who married a ghost. <laughs> Guys, next time, or girls, next time you kiss a guy, just because you feel his lips, it doesn't mean he's real. <laughs> could be a ghost. <laughs> Is that spooky? <laughs> yeah. But I can imagine it's real because your mind, your consciousness, if you want something so badly, he really wanted to go through that wedding. Now his love for that woman was really, really strong. That even though he died, he created this body with his mind so he could go through with a wedding. But that's all as far as he could go. 
That is a real story. The bride who married a ghost. <laughs> and how can we understand that by ordinary physics? It has to be this mind interfering with things, which it does. I've had too many experiences of that as a monk because as a monk we really train our mind, it gets very, very strong. And you know that these things can be done. So just because you die, the mind carries on. And sometimes people have what we call these near-death experiences. And one of my um, postulants is about to become a novice soon. He told me, he was from the Punjab in India, and he told me this really freaky story. That there was, there was uh, an old woman in the village, and in the morning she died. It's his village, he knew her. She died in the morning. So they laid her out, cleaned her up, and just got the funeral pyre for the evening. But before they put her on the funeral pyre, she woke up. She was alive, she came to again. And they were just really so amazed. So what happened? And she related the story that after dying, she was taken away to this place. And when the person was checking them, he told these two spirits who had brought her here, you idiots, you fools, you brought me the wrong woman. She's not supposed to die. Take her back. So these spirits actually, this is what she recalled afterwards, they took her back and that's when she woke up. And about five minutes later, in another house in the village, another old lady died, who had the same name as her. <laughs> because it was a Punjab, it was a Sikh community, and all the guys are called Mr. Singh, and all, honestly, and all the girls are called Mrs. Durr. And so the surnames are all the same, it's just the Christian, the first names, and of course these two happen to have the first name, the same. So they got the wrong person, and they brought her back again. <laughs> Strange, but true. <laughs> so, <laughs> this is what happened when you have these near-death experiences. This actually shows the body is dead. There's no sign of life, but the consciousness carries on. And those near-death experiences, I'm a scientist, so you have to follow this. Those near-death experiences which people have floating out of their body, one of the best ones was this person over, this was on the BBC, a great documentary about near-death experiences, about a person who had an aneurysm at the base of their brain. An aneurysm is where the blood vessels get very weak and because of the blood pressure they balloon out. And if they burst, that's it. <laughs> Dead. And at the time, no one was prepared to do an operation on her. It was too dangerous. It was an inaccessible part of the brain. But she managed to find a doctor in Colorado Springs who was one of the pioneers of what now we call uh, chirogenic freezing. That's where you take a person's body and you freeze them. You take them down to such a low, low, low temperature that everything stops. And then you do your operation 
and then you thaw them out and hope for the best. <laughs> Basically. At that time that was happening because they'd never done this before. And she had nothing to lose. She could die at any time. So she signed all the waivers. She wouldn't sue anybody if she died. And so they froze her. So if you think you're cold, just wait till you get cryogenically freeze. That is cold. So they froze her and froze her. And the anaesthetist, he was on this program researching MDEs because he knew that the brain would be frozen to such a low temperature that even the brain wouldn't work. No neurons could fire. And he had a machine on them. He told the BBC, if one neuron, even one neuron fired, even the slightest brain activity, he would pick it up. And at that low temperature, nothing fired at all. And they, basically they took the lid off her head, lifted up the brain, fixed it up underneath, put it in, put the lid back on, and, and <laughs> thawed her out, basically. And it worked. She survived. It was one of the first examples, successful examples of surgery under such low temperatures. And she recounted everything which had happened while her brain was not working at all. Clear proof, evidence, incontrovertible that the mind was working when the brain was not. And there's been many other great cases. One of the cases which I read years ago, Professor John Lorber, Sheffield University. He was investigating the effect which deformed skulls have on your brain, on your intelligence, your social adaptability. And so on the campus of that university, he'd be looking for anyone who's brain was slightly, oh no, not brain, sorry, skull was slightly misshapen. And he was the experts on skulls, on skullology. And, <laughs> I just made that up, <laughs> sounds good. And you believed it, don't you? I just, but the rest of the story is absolutely true. <laughs> and a professor of skullology, he, he could notice things which no one else could notice. He noticed this one young man. He was a graduate student in maths. And his skull was deformed. So he invited him on the program. He, had a, he gave him a CT scan. And that's when, as they say, the excrement hit the fan. I was going to say the shit hit the fan, but there's kids here. And I decided not to say it. <laughs> so. And if anybody, when I say that word, I know some people in Sri Lanka, they complain, you're a monk, you shouldn't say the shit word. <laughs> but, I refer you to the Aranavibhanga Sutta, taught by the Buddha, and to the Vinayapitaka, taught by the Buddha, where the Buddha said explicitly, monks, when you teach the Dhamma, you must teach in the local language. <laughs> This is Melbourne, <laughs> so I'll just teach you to <laughs> So you can't, you can't blame me for this. So anyway, because when they got the results of the CT scan, there was no brain there. Honest student in maths, totally 
uh, well settled, he had a girlfriend, he was actually probably more normal than normal. <laughs> Highly intelligent, totally well adjusted to society and he had no brain inside at all. Just cerebral fluid, that's all. So, I'm now going to do experiment number two. Can you please move your head backwards and forwards? <laughs> Can you hear any sloshing? <laughs> if you hear some sloshing, it may be you too. You've got no brain. It's <laughs> just cerebral fluid. <laughs> so, the boy with no brain. How can you explain that his mind was so highly developed, even though no brain? So the mind of consciousness has got nothing to do with the brain. Now the other way we can know this, hypnosis. Hypnosis is an incredibly powerful uh, tool to discover amazing things about consciousness and its interaction with the body. One of the things which they did, they decided to take a nail, a very famous experiment, take a nail, just at ordinary room temperature, and they convinced this guy under hypnosis that this nail was red hot and they touched it on his skin. And as you can imagine, he believed that, he was hypnotized into believing this nail was red hot, so he screamed. It hurt. They expected that, but what no one expected was a blister to come up. There was no damage done by heat, but his mind had believed it was hot and his mind had interfered with the body and created the blister. That is how powerful consciousness is. It's that consciousness affects the body. It interferes with it. And that also explains, as Buddhists, where we learn how to train the consciousness, we train the mind, how we can do some interesting things, like getting cancers to shrink and vanish away. One of my friends, George, he was from the East End of London. I am the only one in our monastery who can understand him. He's so cockney. <laughs> you have to have lived in London to be able to understand him. And actually, you know, when you say I'm from London, actually I was born in the bush. I was raised in the bush. Shepherd's bush. <laughs> so I'm a boy from the bush. So I say that in Australia because people think, oh, you're an Aussie. You're born in the bush, raised in the bush. Yeah, shepherd's bush. It's a suburb in London if you've ever been there. But anyway, <laughs> anyway, just uh, when you, know, you understand the nature of this mind and how it can affect the body, it's incredible what it can do. So this guy, George, he had stage four lung cancer. He smoked. He just grew up like that, so it's very hard for him to stop when uh, for years and years and years he thought it was a cool thing to do. He's very old. Stage 4 lung cancer. And when he told me, he went to see his, his oncologist and he showed him the, the latest x-rays. The, the uh, cancer was all over both lungs. Every lobe was covered with cancer. And he said, usually we'll try and do surgery, it's a waste of time. We'd have to cut everything out, both lungs, totally, 100%. The cancer's everywhere. There's nothing we can do. You maybe got a month or two to live. But let me know what you want to do. If you want, we can try chemotherapy, radiation therapy, surgeries out. 
may give you an extra month or two of life, we don't know. But, you know, that's the option. It's Australia, you can do that if you want to. So he said, I'll go home and talk it over with my wife. So he went back and he decided, what's the point of going through all this very, very intrusive, uncomfortable treatment just for another couple of months? So he said to the doctor, I'll just let nature take its course. I'm resigned myself to die. And the doctor insisted, I'm going to take another x-ray to see how the cancer has developed over the last week. And so when he went into the oncologist's room, the doctor was looking at the new x-ray, shaking his head. And poor old George thought, it's got worse, hasn't it? Maybe I haven't got a week to live. Tell me, doctor, don't keep anything back. And that's when the doctor looked up at George. I'm shaking my head, George. Not because it's got worse, but because it's totally vanished. I've never seen this before, George. What the hell have you been doing? And George said, meditating. I've been meditating. And the doctor said, carry on. <laughs> in one week, just vanished. I've seen that several times in my life as a teacher. It's amazing just how powerful your mind can be if you start to train it. The nature of consciousness is this incredible tool which you don't use properly. Yeah, I know in Australia, you go to gyms, you train yourself, and we've got the great athletes. When it comes to Olympic Games and other sports, Australia are always doing well, punching above their weight, you know, according to the, the number of people in Australia. Why do they do that? Because they like training their body. But how about training the mind? It's incredible what you can do. Some monks can even levitate. So why not? You meditate, you kids at the front there, and learn how to levitate. And then you can go to the Rio Olympic Games and win the gold medal for Australia in high jump. <laughs> Easy to sit down there and just rise, go over the bar, come down again. That'd be really cool. Here's the power of the mind. So this is nature of consciousness. Now, let's go further. Now, when a person dies, body goes, the consciousness continues on. That's really quite obvious. That's called reincarnation. There's too many people remember their past lives. Actually, to say other than it is true. But what else can we say about the nature of consciousness? What about when consciousness first starts? As somebody was asking me. Abortion. Stem cell research. Getting a fertilized embryo. And destroying it, killing it, is that killing life? And I was telling people that if it's just an embryo, a couple of cells in a petri dish, many people in their heart they don't feel bad about destroying that and using it for something else which will save people's life. But if you've seen any of these videos of an abortion happening late term and seeing this fetus cringe a needle coming into it, you feel a revulsion there. You see this little being in a mother's womb experiencing pain. And indeed, that is how the Buddha taught. He said life begins in a mother's womb when consciousness first manifests in that fetus. 
when it shows signs of responding to pain and pleasure. At that time, when the neural system starts to form inside the, the, the fetus, that is where we, in Buddhism, we say life begins. And of course, once that consciousness does become manifest, we do get a moral revulsion of killing something. But if it doesn't show, manifest pain, then we don't have that revulsion. And that's exactly how the Buddha taught. So you mothers, you know, people who had had an abortion, very early term, you haven't killed. The consciousness is not manifested yet. The same with embryo research. But what about killing dogs and cats? How many of you have had a dog or a cat? and have taken it to the vet and had this terrible, terrible decision to make. The vet says, <coughs> I've got to put the dog down. It reminds me of a story of this lady who had this huge golden retriever. Huge dog. And it got sick. Only a small infection. But the dog picked it up, looked at it, looked around it and said, I'm sorry, I've got to put your dog down. So why? It's only got a little infection. Why are you going to put it down? Because it's heavy, madam. <laughs> okay, I'll try another vet joke. <laughs> another vet joke. Okay. <laughs> Woman brought her dog to the vet. And he said, something wrong with it. And the vet had one look at it and said, yeah, of course, it's dead. <laughs> and the, the, the owner loved her dog so much, it can't be dead. Look, I'm a vet, I know it's dead. It can't be, check it. So what the vet did, he took a cat from out one of the cages <laughs> and he put the cat's head right in front of the dog. Now you know what dogs do when they have cats. And the dog was perfectly still took the cat round the back of the dog to its bottom and the cat was meowing and screeching and the dog was silent. Turned the dog over and put the cat on its tummy and still the, the dog didn't do anything. And then the vet put the cat back in the cage and said, I told you, your dog is dead. He said, well actually my dog was always afraid of cats so I admit it now. And then the vet gave her the bill, $310. That's too much, she said. How can you explain that? It was $10 for the consultation and $300 for the CAT scan. <laughs> okay. Well, you asked for a bad joke, you got one. You got two, you got two there for the price of one. <laughs> okay, so what do you do if your dog gets sick and you take it to the vet? And understanding what consciousness is and understand about morality, your duties is you have no right to kill a sentient being in Buddhism. But then again, you've got to be compassionate. Your dog is hurting. It's got cancer at the end of its life. What can you do? And the answer is, if you have a dog or a cat, a pet, whatever, it comes to the end of their life, they've got cancer, 
or some other terrible disease, you take it to the vet and the vet said there's no hope of recovery, can I euthanize your dog, basically kill it? The answer is, ask your dog. And this really works many, many times. And it solves a, a problem for you. So I remember one example I give was Judy. Still comes along to our Buddhist center. She had a dear dog. It got cancer. And like any lover of animals, you take it to the vet again and again. Any treatment, you don't really worry about the cost because it's like a person in your family. So she took it to the vet. And there came eventually the time said, there's nothing more we can do. I have to euthanize your dog. She remembered my instructions, so she, took, she said, can I have a few minutes alone with my dog? Sure. So she took it to a quiet room, held her dog in her arms, looked at the dog in its eyes. This dog which she loved, and the dog loved her, they'd been together for so many years. And he asked the dog, have you had enough? Do you want to die? Or do you want to carry on a bit longer? It's your call. And if that's your dog, you will know what its answer is. She knew that answer. The dog didn't want to die. So she took the dog back to the vet and said, sorry, I'm taking it home. You're not killing it. And she told me the vet was really angry. You cool person. You stupid Buddhist. You know, you're just doing that for yourself. That dog is hurting. You should put it down. You're crazy. You're stupid. I hate Buddhism, said the, <laughs> the doctor. But Judy took the, took the dog back. Six months later, she took the dog back to see the, the vet. It had made a full recovery, miraculous remission of cancer without any treatment. And the doctor looked at that dog, examined it upside down, inside out, nothing wrong with the dog, and looked at Judy and said, you Buddhists are so wise. <laughs> I love Buddhists. <laughs> you are so compassionate. Because the dog knows whether it's got a chance or not. Your cat knows, and it's your cat's call. Now, it's her call or his call. If she wants to die, and you take it to the vet and said, yeah, okay, you can inject it. You are not killing the dog or cat. You are conveying the dog's wishes or the cat's wishes or the rabbit's wish, if you've got a rabbit, to the doctor. It's the dog's decision. And that means the morality of it is, is solved. You can do that. But what happens to a dog if it is put down? Do dogs have consciousness? Do they have ghosts? Do cats go to heaven? The same heaven which dogs go to? Would that be a heaven? <laughs> One of my friends in Perth, her husband had died a long time ago. She had a dog, her companion. And she told me she'd go for a walk with her dog every morning, every evening, in the forest. They had some parkland close by to her. And one day when they were walking, playing around in the forest, she realized she had dropped her finger ring. Not expensive, but had high emotional value to her. So she spent a couple of hours trying to search for her fingering. But it's in a forest, with all the leaf litter and twigs, it's almost impossible to find. But she kept on looking, 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 after a couple of hours, she gave up. It's lost. 
and she forgot about it the next day when her dog tragically died. And she told me this story personally. After her dog died, she heard her ghost dog barking in the house where she lived. She wasn't imagining this because if you have a dog, you know the sound of your dog's bark. Totally different than any other dog. But the problem was, it was always in a room where she wasn't. And she'd hurriedly run to that room, open the door, trying to get a glimpse of the dog she loved and was, was grieving for. But she could never see the dog. She could hear it, but gain no sight of it. Until one day, three or four days after the death, she was in front of the main door of her house, inside. And she heard the dog barking loudly right outside the door, only a few inches away from her, but the door was between them. So she hurriedly opened the door, thinking this time she can see her dog. She saw no dog. There's no dog there. But in the middle of the welcome mat was her fingering. She'd been in and out of the house many, many times. Now for the first time her ring appeared in the middle of the welcome mat, just after the dog finished barking. And that was the last time she heard her dog. Her dog had found her ring for her. That's a beautiful story. There are such things as ghost dogs, and they find things for you. Or one of the other ghost stories about somebody finding something for me. There was <laughs> this Thai lady married to a Chinese man. And this Thai lady, she was, if ever there was a wife from hell, she was it. <laughs> she gave her husband such a hard time. George, George, come over here. George, you stupid man. In front of everybody in the temple. I felt sorry for George. Everyone felt sorry for George. This woman gave him such a hard time. And when it came close to her death, she came to see me. She said, look, I don't trust my stupid husband. I'm going to die soon. She said, Ajahn Brahm, can you arrange the funeral for me? My husband just is incompetent. <laughs> well, I can't arrange funerals, but she said, this is a deal. She had a small apartment. I will bequeath half of the apartment to your Buddhist temple if you do the funeral for us. I can't do deals. I had to tell the committee. Committee do deals, and it was a good deal. So they said yes. <laughs> <laughs> Committees. But anyway, no, they're good. So, we arranged a funeral for her, and she told me it was in her will. Half her property went to Buddhist society. And after the funeral was finished, we don't go straight up to George, the widow, and say, no, okay, cough up, let's have the will. We're not like that. We waited about two or three weeks and said, George, you've got the will. Said, I can't find it. It's gone. I don't know where she put it. So, oh, never mind. If it turns up, let us know. You know, we, as a monk, you're not into all this you know, hounding people for money and stuff. And so we let it go. And one morning, he came to see me really early in the morning. And he was so, so afraid. And he reached into his pocket, here's the will, Ajahn here's the will, take it, take it now, please. What's the rush? And that's when he told me, in the middle of the previous night, he was woken up 
by his wife. George, George, get the wheel. You know where the wheel is. Get it to the mouse right now. <laughs> he always knew where the wheel was. But his wife's ghost had to come and scare the you know what out of him. <laughs> and I felt so sorry for George. I thought, once she's dead, he was free of her. No way. <laughs> She was still after him after he died. Poor man, he couldn't give her that will. And as soon as he gave her the will, he said, please, can you tell Poonsup, her name was, to leave me alone now, I've given you the will. Felt so sorry for that poor man. So there is consciousness, and there are ghosts, and there are things after death. And that consciousness, if you understand what it is, has enormous power. Your body lives in a consciousness, not the other way around. And if you want to know anything about physics, Schrodinger's equation is a consciousness, observation, which collapses the equation and creates reality as we know it. In quantum physics, reality is just a smear of probabilities. Life is endless possibilities. And when you make an observation, you actually create reality as you experience it. That is hard science. When I heard that, I thought, wow, consciousness is part of science. You need to see, to hear, to know, to actually to create the world as we know it. That is hard physics. It's also Buddhism as well, the nature of consciousness. Now let's go one step further. Artificial intelligence. Can a computer be conscious? And the first thing you know about consciousness is conscious people make mistakes. That's why I think computers can't exhibit consciousness because they never make mistakes. They're too damn perfect. Real human beings make mistakes. So can you have artificial intelligence? I joke to people, artificial intelligence I haven't seen real intelligence yet amongst the leaders of our world. <laughs> so it'd be great if I had some artificial intelligence, that'd be getting halfway. So what about intelligence in other planets? Does consciousness exist in other worlds? Are there such things as aliens? Brahm, what's the answer? And the answer is, there are aliens. And I can prove it for you. Because many times I've been to Heathrow Airport. If you go to Heathrow Airport, you will see the sign there. EU citizens, UK citizens, and aliens. <laughs> They've got their own entry point. I've seen it many times. <laughs> I didn't actually see the people in tentacles and, and funny legs and bulging eyes going through, but they got the alien entry point in England, so there must be, <laughs> must be aliens. But I will finish off with one of the great philosophers, which is in, okay, it's in the cartoon, Calvin and Hobbes. Who's once said, Calvin said, the surest sign there's intelligent life in outer space. The surest sign there's intelligence out there is they haven't visited Earth. <laughs> They're too intelligent to come to this crazy house. So that is my little talk on consciousness today.
Thank you for listening. Now, any questions, uh, compliments, or complaints? <laughs> okay, the nature of consciousness. Who's got something they would like to ask? Somebody must be conscious and speak apart from me. Oh yeah, okay, yes, thank you. Conscious can impact on your own body, but impact on other people. Can it impact on other people? Yes, it can. Especially people with power. So, I told this story this afternoon. I was visiting my mother in England and she was making my lunch, my one meal of the day. And if you're a monk and you only have one chance at a feed, it becomes very important. <laughs> so when she was busy cooking my lunch and there was a, a call on the doorbell, I say, Mum, you look after my lunch, I will answer the door. So I answered the door and there was a woman standing outside and she was what they call in England gypsies, a gypsy woman. And she was selling things door to door, trinkets, just like a little bit of heather or a little um, trinket for an exorbitant amount of money. That's how they make their living. And I said, thank you, we don't want one. And then she looked at me and said, if you don't buy one, I will put a gypsy curse on you. It was their marketing strategy. <laughs> and most people are so stupid, they'll buy one just in case, because they're so gullible. But not me. And if she's going to play games like that, I'm going to play back. So don't mess with monks, okay? <laughs> so I stood up, I was wearing my robes. I said, can't you see? I am a Buddhist monk. And Buddhist curses are much stronger than yours. <laughs> and this poor woman, I really went over the top. Because her jaw dropped, her face went white, she turned away and she ran. But of course, we wouldn't put a curse on anybody. Maybe. <laughs> but if you put a donation in the box on the way out, you'll be safe. <laughs> That's my marketing strategy. <laughs> so, so that, but you do have power of, uh, of using the mind. Okay, miracles. There's one miracle I was involved in, everybody saw, even uh, Dr. Jeff Gallup, he was the ex-premier of Western Australia, he's just, uh, he's retired now from University of New South Wales, he sent me a nice letter just about a week ago, he's gone over to Europe with his wife for, for vacation for six months, he saw this, the Thai ambassador saw this at the time, Suchitra, she's now over in Thailand doing something else. And also the media too. Real juicy miracle. It was the 30th anniversary. Was anyone else here who saw that from here? So a few people from Victoria went along. It was our 30th anniversary of our Buddhist society in Western Australia. It happened to be on a Waisak day, full moon day of May, 
and it happened to be a Sunday so we decided let's have big celebration no expenses spared so we have a big field in the centre of Perth called Supreme Court Gardens they have many events there we called up the local Perth City Council it was free that weekend amazing luck we booked it we were going to have an open-air Waisak celebrating our 30th anniversary we've got a huge big golden Buddha statue from Thailand to take centre stage invited the Premier Jeff Gallup many ambassadors and dignitaries when I woke up in the morning that day it was raining not ordinary rain a huge storm was coming and it was going to hit Perth at 7.30 p.m. the exact time we were going to start our ceremony from the morning it rained and rained and rained without stop this was not an ordinary shower three times the Premier's department called me there's a storm about to hit are you cancelling your open air ceremony three times I said no one of the disciples he was in the merchant navy all his life a sailor he took me aside and said Ajahn Brahm I know these things this is my livelihood the barometer is dropping 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 this is a storm for sure there's no way you can hold a ceremony tonight yes we are and even one of my monks one of my own monks he took me aside and grabbed me by the shoulder and said Ajahn Brahm you're making a fool of us all it's going to rain, it's a storm, trees are going to come down it's a major storm about to hit we can't do this I say yes we are <laughs> so with a storm about to hit with the Premier just waiting not to come with even my monks losing faith we carried on and just about half an hour before the dignitaries arose came I was in the tent helping arrange everything and this Burmese girl came running into the tent crying her eyes out Hajjan Brahm you've got to come out I thought oh no what now some other tragedy has happened she pulled me out of the tent and put her finger up the clouds had cleared the rain had stopped and the full moon was shining and it continued to shine over the whole ceremony for two hours when we finished it closed up and poured the freeway was flooded the field was under two inches of water and even the person who owned the, the company which hired out all these tents and stages he sent an email he said we never heard of this Ajahn Brahm before but can you please ask him who's going to win the horse racing today <laughs> I still got that email <laughs> and we had a TV crew and they were going around this is weird this is weird this is weird and the attendance was not very great a lot of people came but many people didn't come because to the east to the west, to the north, to the south trees were coming out of the ground big branches had been torn off it was pouring, the wind was howling 
and no one could believe who wasn't there that right over our ceremony it was calm and the full wayside moon shined upon us dry for the ceremony many people who were skeptics said that was weird that is strange that was a miracle but it only happened if you're doing a wonderful event like WESAC and lots of good people coming together you may not agree with this but people who were there saw that and that should not have happened but it did the power of the mind you can stop storms big ones and that's why the Premier Jeff Gallup is always in touch with me <laughs> It was such a great shame because I just got the Premier Jeff Gallup and many of you may know that he was the best friend of Tony Blair. They were at Oxford together and Jeff Gallup was Tony Blair and Sherry Blair's best man at their wedding. I had Tony Blair but a few months later he resigned because of depression and with that I lost my contact with Tony Blair. I had this big plan first convert Jeff Gallup then I get direct access to Tony Blair and then I could convert Tony Blair's best friend George W Bush <laughs> and I could have saved the world so close I didn't quite make it never mind <laughs> I like to exaggerate but that was a, no exaggeration that was a miracle yeah yeah. Astrology. Psychics. Astrology, okay. You know, it's very hard to find something to give to a monk because we don't need anything. And don't give me a bar of chocolate. Since coming here, I've got a whole shop, a whole you know, uh, chocolate shop full of chocolates. Get heaps of chocolates and heaps of. And don't give me socks, I don't wear them. So it's very hard to get something for a monk. So it was my birthday. And this one person had this great idea. They decided to actually to read my fortune, to do my horoscope. And so they did that. They got my birthday and a time of day. And at my birthday, they read out my horoscope, done by one of the top astrologers. And there in front of the whole monastic community and all my supporters come for my birthday, they started reading out the horoscope. To someone who was born on 7th of August 1951 at this time, said, the next 12 months will be an excellent time for romance. <laughs> <laughs> that was my fortune for the year. I'm still a monk. They were wrong. <laughs> that was so funny because <laughs> Romance, that's what it was going to be a good year for, someone under my horoscope. So now astrology doesn't always work. It may give some indications, but nothing more than that. Psychics. And that's something different, because sometimes people do get... This, actually, this uncle who died, I just found out from my brother this morning, he was 90. This is... I can't believe this, but you know, my family says it's absolutely true. How he married my... basically my aunt my mother's, she was actually mother's cousin, but they grew up as sisters. Just after the Second World War, my mother and you know, this cousin Opal, they went to see a psychic, just for fun. 
there's something to do. And this psychic took a look at my uh, auntie, Opal, and said, you're soon going to meet the man you're going to marry. His name is Donald Wolfries. Gave the name of this guy, she'd never even met him. And a few days later, she was at a dance where they used to meet people in those days. Met this nice guy, dancing, what's your name? Donald, uh-oh, surname, Wolfries. <laughs> <laughs> and they were married for over 60 years. And he only died in the last week. That was incredible, and I kept on asking, is that true? I said, yeah, true, it happened. How did you feel? I'm pretty shocked when I meet this nice guy, what's your name, Donald, uh-oh, here we go, Wolfries. And they had been happily married for such a long time. And that was personal experience, so there is always something to it, but not always. Sometimes the psychics get it wrong, and that is the problem. Many of you Sri Lankans, have you heard of a Professor Jayatilaki? He's written many books. He died when he was young, because he went to a psychic. He too went to, was it, Katragama, the place where all the psychics are, the mediums and stuff, or big mediums. And when he was there, he had the same thing. The medium told him the name of the woman he was about to marry. He never had met her yet. He, married, he met her later on, a woman by exactly the same name, he married her. And that's why he believed in his psychics. And once the psychic told him that he was going to live to a, an old age, he was going to die in his 80s. And he believed that too. So when he was in his 40s, he started to become sick. He never went to see a doctor. Why go to see a doctor? He was going to live till his 80s. <laughs> and by the time he went to see the doctor, it was too late. He, did, he died when he was about 45, 46 or something. And that was attributed to his belief in the psychics. So sometimes be careful, because sometimes if you believe in that, it can kill you. So that's the problem. Yes? Um, you were talking about levitation. Levitation, yes. I'm just curious. Yes. How do you do it yourself? I, I, well, I levitate, I'm going to levitate on Wednesday. <laughs> I'm levitating on Virgin Airways all the way back to. <laughs> <laughs> I got a question here. Now we don't show off our psychic powers because if any monk had a psychic power and showed it off, imagine what would happen next. I'd be spend the rest of my life as a lab rat. Just people just trying to do experiments on you for the rest of your life. And imagine if I could prove that I could read people's minds. The CIA would get me to interrogate all these people and find out, you know, who's a terrorist, who's not. They put me on Melbourne Airport. He wouldn't need to go through the scanners, I'll just have a look at you, Ned. He's got a bomb, she has it, she has it, he has it. <laughs> far more efficient, go through the customs screening much quicker. So that's why we always keep these things quiet until we die. We don't tell people who have psychic powers till the very end. So if you want, I shouldn't tell you this, but there is a trick. You find some sort of doctor to put some sort of medicine, say, you know, in Venerable Buddharakta's food. <laughs> and it looks like he's dying. So you're going to die, you've had it, you know, you've only got a few hours to live. Because at the last part of our life, then we're supposed to tell you what we've done. We're going to die soon, so it doesn't matter. But then when he spills the beans of, you know, how enlightened he is and what sort of psychic powers he has, 
They can say, okay, only a joke, you're not really dying, but we've got it out of you now. <laughs> but that's the only way, because we're not supposed to say, keep it quiet, Because imagine, if you imagined, if you believed I could read your mind, I really could read your mind, that would be scary. Say, so Ajahn Brahm, please don't tell my husband. <laughs> Because you know, I was with these monks who could read minds, you know, people like Ajahn Chah and stuff, and that's really scary. You know, because you know, I don't want you to read my mind right now. You know, because I was a young monk, he used to think sexual fantasies as a young monk like everybody else. But I didn't want that to come out. <laughs> Keep out of my mind Ajahn Chah, I'm not ready yet. When I'm ready I'll tell you, but not now. <laughs> you got all your secrets? If I could read your mind I could get all the secrets out and tell you. <laughs> no, because really good monks don't read people's minds anyway. They're not worth reading. <laughs> like a trash novel. <laughs> anyway, let's go back to this one over here. We've got here. How do you let go of past trauma and focus on the present? Depends how big the trauma is. Okay, if it's ordinary disappointment and trauma, it is, use the, um, the piece of paper, simile, or exercise. This is very common in psychology, they get you to write down what had happened, to actually admit it, bring it up to the surface. But the my method, which many psychologists use these days, just adds this little extra twist to it, which makes it more powerful. My difference between most psychologists and therapists is the type of paper you use to write down details of your traumatic experience and the colour of the pen you use. So for me, if you've got some trauma in the past, some terrible experience, write it down on toilet paper <laughs> and use brown ink. <laughs> Because if you write down this terrible thing which happened to you on toilet paper, in brown ink, in psychology you're making an association with the other brown stuff which goes on toilet paper. <laughs> and it doesn't matter just how environmentally sensitive you are. You know, the planet is warming up, we've got to conserve resources. But it doesn't matter even in Greenpeace and <laughs> in all these other organisations, they only ever use one side of the toilet paper. Imagine just how much trees you can save by using the other side of the toilet paper as well. <laughs> you wasteful economic vandal, environmental vandals only using one side. And the corners as well, you know, make sure you use all parts of it. But what happens, you just get a tiny bit of brown on the toilet paper. Even if you have a tiny bit of brown, you don't fold it up and put it in your pocket to keep for another time, so you can use the other part, do you? No one does that. <laughs> Not even the leader of the Green Party in Victoria. It's actually the, the Green person, is somebody who's actually is the member for Melbourne. She's a green, isn't she? Or he is a green? Ask her. Is it her or him? Him. Ask him if he uses both sides of the toilet paper. If he really is a green. <laughs> now of course you get a tiny bit on the toilet paper, you throw it away. You can't keep it. Because it's dirty, filthy stuff. So if you write down on a piece of toilet paper what happened to you, the trauma, 
straight away you know you must not keep this. So then you take it to the letting go room to do the letting go ceremony. <laughs> you have to do a ceremony, okay? That's like getting married. Just saying, I'm going to live with you, darling, it does not work. You've got to go through a ceremony, a commitment in front of people, even dying. You're just dead. I tell people, just put me in the, in the recycling bin when I die. You don't need to have a funeral and it costs a lot of money, just recycle me. You know, they come, I think, once every week or once every fortnight in Melbourne, the yellow bins. You have yellow bins here? <laughs> Whatever colour the bins are, just put in a recycling bin in the back of the van. It's disposed of, really good, really easy. You need a ceremony. Same with to do this, let it go. You need a ceremony to reinforce the message you're letting this go. So you go into the toilet and you read it once more. All, all the bad stuff. Making the association, this is not something you should keep. And then, of course, you put it in the bowl and you do the ceremony. Press the button. And it goes round the bend, out of your life, forever. It's shitty stuff, you shouldn't be keeping this trauma. Now that actually, you may think that's a joke, but that actually works. Because it's making an association, doing a ceremonial act, something which helps you take the idea of muscle let go and take it even into deeper, more powerful, physical act to reinforce the letting go. It goes away and you find it easier to let go of the trauma. You realise it's not something you should keep, no more than you should keep a dirty piece of toilet paper. It helps, it works. So try that. You may find that you may need to call a plumber into your house. <laughs> All your toilets are blocked, you've got a lot of stuff. <laughs> now, go into big trauma. Because like being a Buddhist monk, because you know about consciousness, you know, I know the mind, I've been meditating, looking at it for the past 40 years, spending more time than you've ever done. So I understand how this mind works. You get these great innovative ways of dealing with things like big trauma. I'm talking about multiple rape, torture. Because there's an organisation which I support over in Western Australia. I'm sure you have the same organisation here, it's called ASSETS, the Association, the Australian Society of Survivors of Torture and Trauma. This is really heavy stuff. I can't tell a joke about this, this is not right to tell jokes about people who have arrived in Australia, you know, the real refugees, who have been through disgusting treatments. You know, in these underground dungeons, multiple rape, torture, and when they tell you some of the stuff they've endured, it just makes your skin creep. And sometimes I just wonder just how on earth one human being can do this to another. I can't understand it, it just, no way can I comprehend the pain which some people inflict on others. But they've made it to a country like Australia. Physically they're free, emotionally they're still in the torture chambers being raped. How on earth do you get their emotions to be free? And the people working there said one of the stories which I have given really helps. And I mentioned this the first night I came here. They said this is powerful, but it works. All coming from that 
Opening the Door of Your Heart Simile, which I wrote about in my, wrote about in my first book. Imagine a heart in your chest. And these are the survivors of torture and trauma. They imagine this heart in their chest with two doors. And they open up those doors. And they put a staircase going down to the ground. And on the bottom of that staircase, on the ground, outside, is them, the young girl who was raped, the man who was brutally, endlessly tortured. They're outside. You can recognize them. They're outside, rejected, pushed away. They're just impossible to, to accept what happened to you. They're outside. And you're up top, the other part of you. The part of you which you can endure and stand and embrace. You're divided. You've got to invite those little yous to come up the staircase, to come in to your heart. It's a very difficult thing to do. This young girl, for no reason at all, beautifully, violently raped, come up. Can you imagine her walking up the stairs, terrified. And when you get to the top, the big embrace, come in. I will not try and reject you, get rid of you ever again. I can come into my heart. And all those little people, you know, that boy who was tortured, that young man who was just incredibly brutally treated, they all come up one after another. The memories of the time which you almost died, they come in. And when they all come in, every one of them, there's a catharsis happens. The reason why the trauma is maintained is because you find it hard to embrace it, to allow it to come in. But when it does, a great transformation happens. And it's so inspiring to see this. Just one example amongst many. There was a woman in our centre in Perth who'd been brutally raped. And she told another guy, just no, not really in front of me, but to the side, what had happened to her. And like most guys, that's a terrible thing which happened to you, that's disgusting. And she rounded on him. What are you saying, a disgusting thing? You've got no right to say that. It's made me who I am today. I've embraced it, I'm not afraid of it anymore. It's who I am. And that, identifying, <coughs> Acknowledging, embracing what happened to you, transforms it. Now they are free. It's incredible to see that. That is how you overcome huge traumas. It works. Opening the door of your heart. And people do this, and I've seen them do it, and it's, whoa, it's really moving. You give people freedom. Freedom to live again. It's when you reject it, it didn't happen, it's terrible, wrong, I'm a victim. That's when it will always be torturing you. You have to let it in, and then you're free of the torture chamber. Okay, that was serious stuff. 
anger and frustration are the problems that I experience as a result of past trauma. How can I deal with the anger? Okay, I think I've answered that already. Embrace. Bring in. You're not angry anymore. You only anger, it only hurts yourself. Embrace. Embrace the trauma. Tough thing to do. I can't tell you how to do it. I can suggest it works. Okay, next question. Yeah, it's a question or is it a comment? There's a question answer. Yeah, there we go. How did the first conscious come into being? Exactly. There can't be a first. If there is a first, remember what I said about time without boundaries. The idea of a first is like an edge to the universe. It cannot make sense. There's no way that logically, reasonably, that you can keep an idea of a beginning or an end. There is no edge, no beginning or an end to this planet Earth. There's no beginning or end to the universe. Ask any scientist. It curves. There's no beginning, no end, no edges to this universe. There's no beginnings or an ends to time. Which means there is no first. There is no last. That is the problem why there's people you know, come across they can't find an answer to that because the question is put wrong. There is no first consciousness. There will be no last. Round and round we go. No first, no last. No beginnings, no ends. If you get your head around that, just change your perception and all the problems are solved. It says, rebirth is based on karma. Does that mean nirvana could not be attained one million years ago because there were no modern humans? Were there modern humans a million years ago? Who knows what was around one million years ago? Maybe not in this planet, but other planets. And you know there is even in the Buddhist scriptures, there's a sutta, it's in the Anguttu in Nikaya, taught by the Buddha, who actually said there are other worlds with other beings in it. Such a long time ago, basically the Buddha said, yes, there are aliens. Amazing. Even the prescience of being able to answer a question when it wasn't even asked yet. Yeah, there are things like aliens around. And one might be sitting next to you. <laughs> the truth, the truth is out there. <laughs> that was X-Files, wasn't it? Yeah. Yes, the truth is out there. Da da da. <laughs> so the Buddha actually said, yeah, there are aliens. That's what it says in the suttas. Well, who knows, maybe there is. But our problem is, we always think we're so special. That is our problem. You know, it's, we started off, a China was a middle country. India was a middle country. Where I came from, England was a middle country. I mean, in fact, I remember seeing these maps with England right in the centre and everything else around it. Now the maps have um, US in the centre. But when I first came to Australia, there was a map of the world. I thought it was a corrective Australian map of the world. I thought it was a wonderful thing. I'm not sure if you've ever seen it. It had Australia in the top centre. 
and United States in the bottom left, and the other, and we were actually at the top. So okay, upside down to the normal way. Why should we have it the European way? You know, with the Europe in the top, and we're down in the bottom right-hand corner somewhere. That is just so discriminatory. <laughs> so they had this Australian, but we were right in the top, in the centre, and the southern hemisphere was the top. Why does the southern hemisphere have to be the bottom? That is discriminatory. So we had a map, the southern hemisphere was the top, and we were at the top with New Zealand. And all the rest were down the bottom somewhere on the edges. That was a correct view of the world. <laughs> Why not? So, uh, we have different ways of looking, and when it comes to, uh, what was I talking about, aliens or whatever, uh, forget what we're talking about now. Where was I going with this? I've been abducted by aliens, my intelligence <laughs> and consciousness. Think about ourselves too much. Think about us, oh yeah, we're always the centre of stuff. So, and after a while, people in Europe, they discovered Africa. Africa was always there. They didn't discover it, they just didn't know about it. They discovered China, the Indians over in the United States, who they thought were coming from India and you know, South Asia. Got it all wrong again. We realised Europe, China, Africa, you weren't the centre of the world. There's more to this, but then we thought the Earth we're the centre of the universe. And, I remember in the Christian Bible, it's the moon and the sun, they go around the earth, because we're the centre, and they find, no, actually, we go around the, the earth with the sun. It really starts putting us in a place, we thought at least, we're, you know, our solar system is the main one, the centre. And then we find, after all these years of astrophysics, we find, we're just an insignificant speck on a, a, a very ordinary uh, branch like the outer suburbs of the solar system which is not a particularly special galaxy. We are so ordinary, we're not the centre of things anymore. We're not special. And that's really a downer for many people. And to think that we're the only beings. Is, as you all know, just by doing a very easy bit of statistics, it's almost impossible that we're the only life forms in this universe. Statistically, mathematically, that's an impossibility. There are 10 to the 11th stars in our solar system. That's one with 11 zeros on the end. And it's roughly 10 to the 11th solar systems known in our universe. That's a huge number. 10 with 22 zeros at the end of solar systems. Imagine how many planets there would be. At the moment we can't see far enough to actually to know which planets are habitable. There must be some. There must be aliens. And in the aliens, maybe other Buddhas. Maybe other Elvis Presleys. That's probably where he's been reborn. <laughs> Why not? So I like that. I just 
like blowing my mind just with imagining the vastness of space and the number of planets and the myriad of life forms. They don't need to be like humans, maybe others, but intelligent beings, why not? The nature of consciousness spread all over the universe. Why not? So, in your next life, if you make enough good karma, you can be reborn as an alien. Would that be cool? <laughs> Being a human being again, that's boring. Having three hands, maybe six eyes. That'd be neat. <laughs> okay, any other questions other than aliens? Yes? Yeah. How do you transform a negative thought so that it doesn't create a negative outcome? Ah, that's a very good question. How can, if you can create things, how can you avoid creating negative things with negative mind states? Exactly. This is a big problem. Many people have such negative mind states, they actually create a negative world. And this is my job, to teach you to meditate, to have a positive mind, to see when you look at two bad bricks in the wall, to see there's 998 good bricks in that wall, and that's the other story, first story, and open the door of your heart. When you see things in another direction, you actually create a much better world. Simple things, the people you live with. Sometimes people say, my husband is just so difficult to live with. How can I change that? Very simple. What you look for is what he will show you. If you expect negativity, that's what you will see. But if you look for the positive, kind, wonderful part of him, if you look for that, it's there. If you look for that, that's what he'll show you back. That's how I reformed prisoners in jail. Went to prison, saw these murderers, these uh, rapists, these child molesters, and I realised I was looking at the wrong thing. I realised they weren't murderers. There weren't any child molesters in prison. There were no thieves in prison. All I ever saw when I trained myself was people. There was a person who'd murdered. There was a person who had raped. They weren't a rapist. There were a person who raped. It's totally different. When you see that they were much bigger than the crime for which they put in, were put in jail, even though it's a disgusting crime, what some people do, they're much bigger than that. So I look for the other part of them. When I saw the other part of them, they saw that themselves. And that's where they got rehabilitated. Your husband, instead of seeing the negative part of him, he's not a negative husband. He's a person who has negative mind states. You've got other parts to him as well. Look at the other part and you'll find the other part will grow and he'll look at you with a positive mind. That's how you create. Now this is really important stuff because I think last week was, that is probably still this week, Schizophrenia Week in Australia. For those of you in mental health, National Schizophrenia Week, trying to look at the problem with schizophrenia in our society. I gave a talk, I go to all interesting places. I went to the Singapore Institute of Mental Health for a conference to give a keynote address. And it was a good address. Afterwards, one of the professors 
of one of the units in the Institute of Mental Health in Singapore invited me to bless his ward. He said, are oh, you a Buddhist? And now I'm a Catholic. So what are you inviting me for? Because I just heard what you said and that's really good. And I asked him, well what ward are you the professor, the leader on? The schizophrenia ward. All the people in Singapore who have schizophrenia come through his ward. Not only that, but people from China and other countries as well. It's called a hub. If you've ever been to Singapore, you know what hub means. Everything is a hub. <laughs> so, I said, how do you treat schizophrenia in Singapore? And he smiled at me and said, we don't treat schizophrenia in the schizophrenia ward of Singapore Institute of Mental Health. And I was really intrigued. I said, well, what do you do? Just like you said in your talk, Ajahn Brahm, we treat the other part of the patient, which is not schizophrenic. And I was so impressed, I put my hand up and worshipped him. And Mark is not supposed to do that. But he said such a wise thing, and I knew how powerful that was. Well done! At last somebody has understood how your mind works. If you treat the schizophrenia, they're a schizophrenic and they will get more schizophrenic. If you treat the other part of the patient, they're not schizophrenic. They're a person who has episodes of schizophrenia. They're not a murderer. They're a person who has episodes of murderers, and they do murderous things, but they're not a murderer. They're more than that. They're more than a schizophrenia. And I had to ask the question, even though I knew the answer. What's the results? And he said, much, much better than by conventional treatments. At last a person has the idea and the sense, the wisdom. There's no such thing as a schizophrenic person. There's a person, a huge being who has episodes of schizophrenia. Treat the other person part. Let them recognise there's more to them than the problem which is destroying their life. There's more to them than that. Focus on the other part for a change and the other part grows. And that's such powerful, because you've probably met people suffering from schizophrenia. Some people here may have that problem. You may know someone you love, a son or daughter has that problem or a friend. And that's just such a big problem. And there is a solution. And you just heard the solution. Treat the other part of the patient. And then you create by your consciousness, by your attention, the other part grows. That's how it works. That's where you learn by meditating for 40 years, how things work. Any other questions or are we running out of time? Yes, actually we have run out of time, we're supposed to finish at 9.30, but everyone seems to be quite happy here. Another question, one last question and then we finish off here. Yes. Over here, yeah. Yeah. Um, how can they create, uh, if not create a world system, or not as you know, in science, that uh, the Earth was created. So the Earth. Yeah. Okay. You say, how were things created? Like the Earth was created, but it was created out of dust. Where was the dust created? It came from another solar system. It, 
And then we get from, say, to the Big Bang. Where did the Big Bang come from? And that was Stephen Hawking's, one of his brilliant pieces of science. He called it Hawking radiation, proving that black holes actually decay. Now, okay, it's science here. I can't really get around this. Black holes were supposed to be the end. When, when matter gets sucked into a black hole, it can't get out again. And Hawking's found out a way it can get out, called Hawking radiation, where black holes can decay. Now, his main um, idea, which made him famous for the Big Bang, was it's called the arrow of time. In physics, whether it goes forward or backwards in time, it's the same rules, the same thing should apply. So, you know, he went to uh, Roger Penrose's lecture. I've met Roger Penrose. He's the most boring guy you could ever meet in the world. But anyway, uh, he, was a, he was a brilliant genius. He's probably, as a physicist, he's way ahead of Stephen Hawking's, but Stephen Hawking's has got the, sort of the accolades. And Stephen Hawking's went to Penrose's lecture and saw the black holes. He said, wait, this can go backwards in time. So when, instead of things ending up as a black hole, they could start as a black hole. And that's where he got the Big Bang from. The universe starting as a black hole and then sort of going backwards in time. And this is what's called the Big Bang. But then he realised, later on in his life, that Penrose's idea of black holes, they're not the end. They go forward. After a black hole, there's a, there's decays, Hawking radiation. And so he realised later in life, well, the hour of time, before the Big Bang, there must be something else, this radiation. He realised that Big Bang is not the beginning of the universe. And if you actually look at his, uh, the movie, Theory of Everything, that's actually, if you know what, if you pick up the points, that's what he's actually saying. After he got this Hawking radiation, the decay of black holes, that meant his first discovery of the Big Bang was never again to be the beginning of the universe. Cannot be. So there was things existing before the Big Bang. Just the same as the things existing after the black holes. It decays. So he realised it's just a cycle. It's not a beginning. Stephen Hawking's proved the Big Bang is not the beginning of the universe. Proved it. That's why he said there was things before it. And that's when in the end he started saying a universe with no boundaries. No beginnings, no ends. So you created that, that you, for a creation you need a beginning. For a beginning you need a creation. There's no beginning, no creation. That is beautiful. It takes away the need, please excuse me if you're a Christian, takes away the need for a God. And with all the problems which come from a God, which is who's got the right God, and killing each other because you haven't got the right God, my sect of Islam, my sect of Christianity, we've got the right God, you've got the wrong God. And all the problems in the world. Imagine a world We've answered the question of beginnings. There was not a beginning, so there's no need for a creation or creator. And basically that is modern science. Then how did we exist? How did we exist? 
We've always existed. Human beings, now evolving, devolving, coming and going, just like trees, being born, saplings, growing, dying, from the ashes of the trees, the leaf litter, and from that new trees grow. The cycles of existence. Which was first, the chicken or the egg? There cannot be a first chicken or an egg. It doesn't make any sense. Imagine there's always been chickens, there's always been eggs. That's a beautiful answer. So what we're doing over here is we're giving you a new way of looking, a new paradigm, which is one of the reasons why I love Buddhism, because that totally expanded. Everything was up for rejection. Even the most basic concepts were saying, the reason why you suffer is because you're looking at things in the wrong way. Change your view, the way you view things, from being a flat timers to round timers, flat earthers to round earthers. And it's very hard to stop people being flat timers. We always think beginnings and ends, creators creating things and endings, Armageddon's and the end of the world. There is no end of this world. Like there is no end, no boundaries to this planet Earth. It goes round and round and round. Universe, round and round and round. Time, round and round and round. That is beautiful. Controversial, yeah, because many people with vested interests in beginnings and endings get into a lot of trouble. Anyway, you heard that first from a monk. <laughs> and soon it will change the whole world. No more having to worry about creating and endings. Just going round in circles. To me, the circle is the most beautiful geometric shape. Much better than the straight line. Spheres rather than the squares. Beginnings and endings are just so sharp squares. Round is perfect. Anyway, that's just me going around, and actually that we do go round and round because now we're going round to leaving and when we come back again tomorrow, it keeps on coming. How long have I been coming here? I can't remember, it's like forever. When am I going to stop coming to Melbourne? Probably never. <laughs> no beginnings, no ends. Except for this talk, which now comes to an end. <laughs> so, three sadhus, Sadhu. Sadhu. That's not good enough. Try again. Put some effort into it. Okay, one, two, three. Sadhu. 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 <laughs> Whatever you do in life, give it everything you've got. Oops. <laughs>